0: Furthermore, the equation E is equal to mc squared. And here's the discovery. I'm going to make them laugh again.
1: Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am Isaiah Hankel. It's great to have all of you on. We have a very very special show lined up. We are bringing on uh, Kara Santamaria, who is the founder of Talk Nerdy. We're going to be talking about how to leverage your scientific communication skills or your engineering communication skills, really your, your STEM communication skills overall or, or nerd speak to get hired in industry. We had on Kara's uh, friend, Crystal Dil- Dilworth, to talk about communication skills previously. It was one of our most popular shows. Very excited uh, to have on Kara. We also have on Robbie uh, Robin Marty Rowe, I think I'm saying that right, uh, a cheeky scientist associate who has worked in R&D, project management, and now medical writing, who's going to be able to explain, very rare situation where we can have one person explain each of these very popular career tracks to all of you. And then finally, we will have our members-only portion of the show where it's just associates. We'll be going through a live LinkedIn review. We'll be doing live Q&As, so a great show lined up overall. Great to see all of you on. Thank you for joining us. We're going to jump in. I'm going to share my screen here. And what I want to show you is a couple of the new articles that we have coming out. So we have an incredible writing team. Uh, Jeanette is our editor-in-chief who just does an incredible job with our articles and keeping really the, the content fresh and cutting edge so that you can get into the career track that you want, whether you are transitioning into industry now or you're trying to get into your uh, next industry job so we, we have here the top trending article this week today is proof networking a foolproof networking guide for PhDs who have no idea where to start or how to start it's a great article if you know that networking is important and all you've heard is go network it's important but you haven't been given any steps or what to do check out that article this new article just came out too. my PhD is not a liability how I got hired into a management level position and how you can too. If you've heard that leaving your PhD off of your resume is the right thing to do because employers see a PhD and it means you're not qualified because all the job postings just say a master's, you're qualified. You're more qualified. More PhDs are hired into STEM jobs than those with their master's. In in fact, the ratio is about two to one. And that's according to a recent mass bio report. So make sure you check out this article. Don't hide your PhD. Uh, And make sure you check out our best of transition articles. All of the best articles about industry, whether it's resumes, networking, types of industry jobs, job openings, are in this curated article. Uh, so check it out. Everything you need in terms of your job search if you're a PhD is here. Uh, just go to cheekyscientist.com blog and you can check out those articles. If you are a, a public guest and you've never been to one of our webinars or if you've been to our webinar, you didn't join the association yet, and you want to see what's new in terms of getting your resume uh, done correctly to get hired in industry, we have all of the current trends for your resume, what you need to do, the most up-to-date information on a free webinar next week, 12 Resume Secrets from Top Recruiters and Hiring Managers for PhDs only. This is a live webinar. The URL, if you're listening to us by audio only, is cheekyscientist.com PhD-Industry-Resume. Go there, sign up the webinar is live next Thursday uh, at 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that is Thursday, April 18th. April 18th at 1 and 9 p.m. You can go sign up there. So what we're going to do now is we're going to jump into the show me the data section. Let me adjust my screen here. I'm going to bring on Jeanette and Jeanette's going to take us through this section. Hi Jeanette, how are
2: you? Good, how are you Isaiah?
1: Good, good to see you on. Thank you for for being here. And thanks for preparing the show me the data section. I'm gonna pull it up here. So please say hello to Jeanette if you can see and hear her okay. Say hello to Jeanette in the the chat box. If you haven't changed your drop down menu to all panels and attendees, please do so now. Great to have all of you on. Okay, so I'm going to share the show me the data page here. And now I just need all of you one more time to say yes in the chat box. If you can see my screen, I'm gonna resize this. See if we, oh, it's just big. Okay, let me do this. <laughs> well, I guess I
2: got carried away with wanting the, the data to no. be visible.
1: <laughs> no, it's okay. I think I can, I think I can get it. Yeah. Um, let's try this. So what we're looking at here, it looks like everybody can see. Is trends in the academic labor force, and we recently shared this online. Great figure that uh, Jeanette dug up for us. Uh, the website that you can find it on. It was published on Bloomberg as well, um, but you can look at aaup.org/issues/contingency/background-facts, and, and that's for people that are listening to us on the, on the podcast or audio only. So, what we're looking at here, I'll just describe what the figure looks like again for our audio listeners. Um, and then Jeanette can walk us through the conclusion. So we have five different colored bar graphs from uh, top to bottom in terms of how they're listed on the figure. It's full-time tenured faculty, full-time tenure track faculty, full-time non-tenure track faculty, part-time faculty, graduate student employees. And on the y-axis we have percent of the labor force, the highest it goes up to is 45%. Um, and then we have uh, four kind of groups on the x-axis 1975 1995 2015 so what are some of the the trends that we see here Jeanette
2: yeah so it's not surprising it's something that we on at Cheeky scientists talk about all the time that we are seeing this decrease a huge decrease in the amount of tenured faculty at universities as well as a decrease in the amount of tenure track um, employees at the university Right, so on this graph, um, the percent of labor force in 1975 was 29% for full-time tenured tenured faculty. Mm. And in 2015, it was 21%, right? So you see a decrease. And then additionally, the same thing with the tenure-track faculty. So in 1975, it
1: was 16%.
2: And in 2015, 8%. So 50% decrease.
1: (laughs) And I think that's the one to focus on, right? Because these are the people that will get into tenure. And we talk a lot about these positions going extinct. And people always say to me, well, you know, tenure is going down. But no, these are people that are like 90 years old that are staying there forever. Like these are not new tenured faculty. The tenure track track faculty is plummeting down. 8%? That is so small. Mm
2: -hmm. So please
1: continue. I just wanted to point that out.
2: No, no, you're right. That's the most shocking, especially for like if you're a postdoc, right? And you're trying to get into this tenure track position. It's really unlikely to happen, right? You're seeing this huge drop in the amount of positions that are open. Um, And then we see the opposite trend as well, where um, because we have a decrease in the tenured and tenure track, we see an uh, increase in the number of uh, full-time non-tenure track positions where that increased from 24 to 40% of yes. uh, people are employed in these non tenure track positions. And we're also seeing this increase in um, part time. Um, oh, sorry, I was wrong there. I used the wrong data. The full time non tenure track is non-tenure. yellow, which went from 10 to 17%. Right. And the really interesting one is this part time faculty is increasing, right? These adjunct positions where you're not you don't have a full-time position it's unstable and that is what's increasing so dramatically where in 1975 it was just 24% and now it's 40% of the workforce the labor force here is part-time faculty
1: did they count adjunct as part-time even if they yeah. were working full-time hours
2: um oh i don't know if that i didn't see that like nuance but they did mention that that was adjunct was included in this part-time
1: yeah so i mean the that's the biggest jump i mean 40% so the next mm-hmm closest thing is, is uh, half of that. So yeah. part-time, and, and it depends on how you classify, like a lot of people who work under adjunct, et cetera, can be considered full-time it, contract positions. Sometimes they're considered full-time. Uh, the point here is that the tenure track path is going extinct fast. And so what's left are these positions that even if they're full-time, the pay is a lot less uh, there's a lot more part-time positions where you're just working part-time to pay is horrid. There's a, there's a lot of articles and, and, and books coming out about this. At first, I think there was a lot of tension on postdocs piling up and now people are like, it's not just postdocs. It's like these professorship positions that are really not professorship. They're like, f- I would say fake professorship positions. And I just want to draw a, a comparison to a lot of data we've been showing about how a postdoc damages your career. That data, the, there was a specific study comparing people who did not do a postdoc to those who did in industry, nonprofit, government, but also in academia, non-tenure-track positions. And what it showed is, is that if that you do a postdoc, the longer you do a postdoc, the more it damages your career. You'll actually never catch up to the salary or the career trajectory of someone, even in academia, that's not on a non-tenure-track position. So if you are like, well, I'll be a full-time tenure-track faculty, and you're thinking, oh, a postdoc will help me do that, it won't. The postdoc is damaging it, and then getting into these you know, fake professorship positions um, aren't leading anywhere. So that's what we're trying trying to show here. So any, any last conclusions here, Jeanette?
2: Yeah. The last thing I'll mention too is, so this is data, the data from 2015, right? So it's a little couple of years old, but I wanted to bring this up because this Bloomberg article that came out is recent. It's from just a couple of mm-hmm. weeks ago. And it's interesting because they talk about American employers being hung up on hiring PhDs, but as someone who knows the value that PhDs bring, right, all it's showing is that
0: mm.
2: employers really want to hire PhDs. It's, it's happening. It's increasing, right? There's data in here about the percentage of different types of areas where PhDs are listed in the job description, yes. right, where they weren't before. Um, so that's why I brought up that data as well, because it's interesting to me that we're seeing people talking about how much industry is hiring PhDs, right? People are noticing.
1: Yeah. And 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 so when you look at this, it, it might be discouraging at first, because all you have learned about is this professorship track and what's happening. It doesn't mean you're not valuable. You're just not valuable in that context in academia, right? But you're extreme, more valuable than ever before in industry, in other types of jobs that didn't exist 10, 20 years ago. And so the question becomes, how do you get into those jobs? Mm -hmm. And we always say, look, it's not that your PhD is not valuable, it's just that you are invisible to employers. How do you increase your visibility? By communicating effectively. That could be anything from making sure that you have your recruiter button turned on on LinkedIn, which is a separate topic, to actually what you write in your LinkedIn profile, how you speak to people on a phone screen, how you speak during a networking event, which is the the main topic, topic for today. Leveraging your scientific communication skills, you know, the, the ability for you to speak, you know, nerd speak, as we've been calling it here, um, and and translate that nerd speak into normal person speak and make it really effective, right? Because if you're talking to a hiring manager, recruiter, very likely they don't have a PhD. Um, so this next figure, it, it, the title is, How Has Science Communication Research Developed? Results from a Citation Analysis. Uh, this is blogs.nottingham.org acuk slash making science public slash 2018. I'm not going to read this whole thing. But it's yeah, a long
0: we'll
1: put the link in the show, note, show notes, but it is a, it's a great place to go, uh, Nottingham.ac.uk for, for data like this. And we're looking at a figure where on the, the y-axis it's the percentage of citations from, specific, uh, from a specific community, and then on the x-axis is year from 1996 to 2014. And it's one of these charts. I don't know what this type of chart is called, Jeanette. I have no idea. (laughs) I forget. I see a lot of. I see more and more of these, but it has a lot of. It has a lot of different lines, but every line's filled in. Like the volume shows the amount. Uh, The different community types that that they're showing on the figure are science debates and the role of journalism um, from PUS to PEST dissemination of science via media. Scientists as communicators. Sociology of science. Media effects on the broader public. Applied science communication. So all of these uh, scientific communication communities or or subtopics really and which ones are growing over time is that correct
2: correct yeah the authors um looked at how they could group all of the science communication citations that they found there was more than a thousand they looked at and this these were the groups that they ended up you know bunching them into um because they were correlated
0: Mm. Um,
2: and the the idea of this figure, right, is to look at what areas were increasing and what areas were decreasing. And that's why they've got this like percentage over time. How is the percentage of these different areas of science communication changing over time, right? And so we mm-hmm. can see that at the top of the graph, the largest increases that you're seeing in the amount are science debates and the role of journalism. And then this from PUS to PEST means, um, the public understanding of science and public engagement in science and technology, right? Mm-hmm. So these are the two biggest ones that have increased as well as the dissemination of science via media, right? So these three areas have come to sort of dominate what all of the the citations. And to me, that means science, like it's how are scientists communicating their science and these new ways of doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Via media, right? We see via podcasting, via like all these new ways that it's, that people are interacting with so with science communication, um, and that there's a big push to get the public more engaged and more understanding of science. So.
1: Yeah. So, what I mean, what does this mean for you? It means that your ability to speak uh, scientifically, uh, you know, in terms of your STEM communication skills, is very, very valuable, and it's crossing over more into you know pop culture, pop yeah. culture, jobs, etc. Uh, I mean, if you look at the dissemination of science via media, that's what's allowed it. I mean, the rise of the internet and technology, etc. So your ability to communicate complex ideas, gather data, draw conclusions, make it so other people can understand is very popular. Some of the most popular article sites online share just scientific conclusions that the everyday person can, can read and understand. So you being able to speak at a high level and then translate that to your audience, it's one of the most crucial parts of, of what we're talking about here, but also one of the most crucial parts of getting a job in industry. The one thing I didn't know here, Jeanette, was what is a PUS to PEST?
2: Yeah, so it's, um, PUS is public understanding of science, Mm. and then PEST is public engagement with science and technology.
1: Excellent. Yeah. So so bridging that that gap
2: from- Yes, it's talking about that, right? So citations that that discuss those topics, yeah.
1: And so the second figure, the communities are the same, right? Mm -hmm. And on the y axis, we have the number of citations again from the specific community on the on the x axis again 1996 2014. But we're just looking at a simple line line graphs here uh, that show what you just talked about, which ones the actual the the, the, has grown the most right with a raw number. uh, the citations. And so the top again is science debates and the role of journalism.
2: Yeah, exactly. So this is just, I think, a little bit clear. It's nice to see all of them in the percentages, Mm -hmm. but then this goes to show you the number of citations and how dramatically this, like, role of journalism, science debates, and how important this is becoming, right, it's growing, the the importance of how science is presented in journalism, right?
1: Yeah, it's gone from, you know, there's a battle right now of, you know, opinion pieces or these pieces that have or you know references in science. And we all know as PhDs that you can find references to back up whatever argument you have, but whoever finds the best references, the most consistent, the most credible references wins and it's more objective. So it's I think it's a very good thing and it's going to become more and more important as you know validating news or validating facts, uh, increases. So that just means that you are going to be more valuable because you're going to be able to dig in and decide objectively on what's right and what's not. You have that high level training. Most people don't. Exactly. Um, Great stuff. So, so the, the, the next figure, what do we have a couple here? So the next figure is a science news and information today. It's, uh, uh, a figure from journalism.org. and what we're looking at is uh, a subtitle that says one in six Americans both actively seek out and frequently consume science news. I mean, just in my lifetime, it's become so much more popular. I mean, everybody wants to know a study, even if it's just one fact, one study backing up whatever you know, personal or professional or career development information uh, that they're consuming. Uh, so it's just a nice little infographic, and it looks. The top thing, uh, the top figure shows 36% get science news at least a few times a week, 30% get science news because they are looking for it. And then there's the crossover of 17% that are called active science news consumers, right? So people that are looking at science news frequently, and are actually going after it, not just you know, clicking on something because it's clickbait. So what's the, what's the overall conclusion here? There's some bar graphs at the end too, Jeanette. It talks about the news sources, specialty sources, right? So the general news sources are news outlets, specialty sources are documentaries, video science programs, magazines, et cetera. What are some of the trends and conclusions we can draw from this?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the trend I wanted to focus on with this, uh, bit of data is that, trustworthy factor that these different sources have, right? So Mm. if you look at that, the bottom part, it says like people regularly get their science news most often from news outlets, like major news outlets, but they don't trust, only 28% of people trust that they're getting the information right. right? And so I think that's interesting to note, right? So most people are getting their, their information from these sources, but they don't necessarily trust them. And then they're less likely to get them from places like a science center or museum, but they do trust that information because they know that at that science museum it's coming from a scientist, mm. right? So, and they're not exactly sure if in the news they're getting their information from a scientist, right? Or from an engineer, from somebody who knows what they're talking about. Mm. Um, and so if you scroll down to the next figure.
1: Yeah, the title here is Public Confidence in Scientists Has Remained Stable for Decades. So this is a Pew Research, uh, dot org article. Yeah. Um, and what we're looking at here, uh, in terms of the specific figure, is confidence in the leaders of the scientific community uh, since the 1970s. And yes. so, for our audio listeners, on the on the y-axis we have zero to 100 percent. On the x-axis, from 1973 to 2018, we have a dark blue line that uh, starts at around 40 percent, but has gone up to 44 percent. That's a, that's the scientific community. Uh, line and then a light blue line that started at about 60% has gone down to 37% that says medicine. So what, what's the conclusion here, Jeanette?
2: Yeah. So this to me, they say that the trust that the public has had in science has not changed. Mm. Right. So the public has always had a consistent and relatively high, um, amount of trust in scientists. Right. And so for me, this data combined with the data that, with the, the fact that, um, people are not trusting the media sources. Mm. That is where PhDs can come in and bridge this gap, right? Because you're a scientist, you have this background that people trust. Mm. Um, And so if you wanna go into science communication, you bring this authority with you that others don't have.
1: Yeah, and this is why I'm excited to have uh, Kara on because we, we heard this from Crystal Dilworth previously that your credibility is a huge lever and most PhDs don't use that, right? And, and so if you, you can lean on your credibility more than others might be able to, and this is data to back that up. So what you say, how you communicate will be taken more seriously. And in industry, this is a, uh, has a large impact. But most PhDs don't leverage it. They don't leverage it during their interviews process. They don't make comparisons to other job candidates who might not have a PhD, only a master's, et cetera. If you do that in the right way, you'll be seen as the more valuable candidate. Um, which is what we're going to talk about here. Uh, so just real quickly, I want to wrap up here. I want to bring on Kara. Uh, this figure showing the percentage of adults who say they have a great deal of confidence in people running each of these institutions. Military, scientific community, medicine, education, press, it's all in that order. And it's, the military has increased dramatically over time. Scientific uh, community has, again, stayed very stable, gone up a little bit. Medicine, education, press has gone down a little bit. Sum yeah, it up. This
2: is just, I think, to show you how like 44% might not seem like that high, but it's actually the second highest on this that list, ball. right? So right. it is one of the most trusted sources by the public. Yeah. I think that's what this graph this shows you. Like it's all relative, right? And,
1: I, and I, be, I, I guarantee most of you haven't thought of this. You probably thought like, okay, we do more rigorous work, etc. But in the general public, you're seeing as highly credible. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we experience all the time. We have employers come to us. And they're almost, they're almost intimidated by the credibility of PhDs and the intelligence, etc. So if you're able to uh, change their perception and take, you know, cherry pick the good parts and remove the bad parts through what you say, uh, that's going to help you, again, get hired, get promoted, etc. So what do I mean by that? Is you know, le- leaning into the credibility part, but not making it seem intimidating. And that how is that done? It's through your communication skills. <laughs> So great stuff here, Jeanette. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank um, you. Really appreciate you being on. Please thank Jeanette for being with us. Great to have her on as always. She does an excellent job uh, finding the, the relevant data for each show and stuff that's exciting to, to go through. Uh, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to introduce our special guest, very excited to bring uh, Cara Santamaria on. You should all be able to see my screen here. Kara is a Los Angeles area Emmy and Knight Foundation award-winning journalist, science, communication, uh, science communicator, television personality, author, and podcaster. Uh, she is a correspondent on the National Geographic's flagship television series, Explore. She is the creator and host of a weekly science uh, podcast called Talk Nerdy with Kara Santamaria, uh, co-host of the popular Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, and hosts a new podcast, Fixed That for You. She co-authored the Skeptics Guide to the Universe book with her co uh, with her podcast co-hosts, and is a national uh, spokesperson for National Geographic's Almanac 2019. She is a founding member of the Nerd Brigade, what a great name, and co-founded the annual Science Communication Retreat hashtag com Camp. Uh, she has uh, previously been a correspondent uh, on Netflix's Bill Nye Saves the World, Tech No and Algeria, uh Jazzerie America, and Real Future on Fusion. She earned her, B, uh, earned her BS in psychology from the University of North Texas, followed by an MS in neurobiology, and is currently working towards a PhD in clinical psychology with a concentration in social, social justice and diversity um, from Felding Graduate University. I wanted to show her podcast here too. I already had it pulled up there. Uh, so you can go to www.caracasantamaria.com. Slash podcast and a lot of great guests really like the style of her website. Um, I'm going to bring on Kara now. Let's see if I can get her to start her video. And I think we have her on. Hi, Kara, how are you? Hi, how are you? Wow, your microphone kills my microphone. That's great. <laughs> I think it's the first guest that's had a mic on. Thanks for Podcasters joining.
3: Podcasters colliding, right? Yeah, I was going to say you have like 15
1: <laughs> podcasts. I was. <laughs> going to check out your, your technical setup. So thank you for joining us. I really appreciate having you on and appreciate everything you're doing for, for science communication in general.
3: Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our chat.
1: Excellent. So my, my first question is, you know, it's always, why? Why did you get into science communication? And, you know, what does science communication mean to you? How do you define it? What, what is it?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, it happened a little a bit more organically. I was working on my, actually I was working on a PhD like over a decade ago. I did my undergrad. I did my master's. I started in psychology, switched over to neuroscience for my master's and um, was actually working on a PhD that combined those two fields. So it was clinical neuropsychology, but I was doing a lot of experimental work in the lab as well, basic animal research. And um I was like not happy. I had left Texas where I was born and raised. I moved to New York. It was very dark. It was very cold. I Mm. did not have a good therapist. And um, (laughs) I I wasn't in the program. I think that was right for me at the time. So Mm. I ended up moving to Los Angeles. I was um, in a relationship with somebody in Los Angeles. It seemed like a good move. The plan was always reestablish residency um, and then start looking for new academic programs. And somehow Mm. in that mix, I started to do more communication of science work. And at first it was sort of a hobby. I was um, like a frequent kind of special guest on television shows and things like that, radio shows. Mm. And eventually um, the tables kind of turned and I started to host my own series and be a correspondent on different things. I never went into science communication as a career. I didn't know it was a career at the time when I started. I remember going to Science Online, which was an early conference for science communicators, um, a lot of bloggers, a lot of early um, like YouTubers, things like that. And um, it like, really opened my eyes, because I realized that I wasn't the only person who did what I was doing for a living. Um, I really wasn't part of the community, and I didn't know the community existed. Hmm. And since then, of course, I've, I've become really dialed into the community. It's a big part of my life. Um, Most of my friends are science communicators. I heard you mention Crystal Dilworth before, which is so funny, because she's like my best friend in the whole world. (laughs) So um, yeah, we we spend a lot of time together. Obviously, we have a great crew out here in Los Angeles. and yeah, it was definitely a twisty road for me. It was never on paper. I never had a to do list that led up to it. Um, I think my one, number one piece of advice that I give early career scientists or graduate students or um, even individuals that are coming from journalism that don't have a science background if you're, you're interested in SciComm, basically, you know. Keep your eyes open when opportunities come up, whether it be travel, whether it be jobs that feel like they're out of left field, um, interviews, interesting opportunities just to meet people. If it doesn't Mm. seem like it fits your path, try it anyway, if it's interesting to you and if it's Mm. compelling to you, because it might open doors and it might be a door that ultimately takes you on a really cool trajectory. Like That's kind of how I
1: did it. Yeah, and you you'll learn to use words like twisty, so twisty, yeah, twisty, so, very scientific. So, so sci science communication, you know, for our audience, for me, when we hear that, we think more formal, like medical writers or whatever. Mm, so okay. maybe can you unpack what science communication, like the full umbrella of what it is, and what you actually do on a day-to-day basis. Besides yes. podcasting.
3: So my, you know, my approach to SciCom really is public communication of science. So mm. it's being this bridge between the academic kind of scientific establishment and the, the general, I hate using the term, the general public, you know, people who are reading science news, people who are watching television, people who are listening to podcasts. So um, I have a lot of friends that are science writers, that are incredibly talented science writers. I don't do that much science writing, um, mostly because I hate writing. It's um, not, it does not come easy for me. So it Mm. takes me probably 10 times the amount of time to write the same number of words. And I'm like frustrated the entire time. But my platform historically has mostly been television. So I do... Um, three different podcasts, as I mentioned, and I do love podcasting it's I think it's a great um, it's a great platform for being mm. able to communicate science. but there is something very special about television because you have that multimedia component and you can tell stories in a way that are really visually compelling so almost from the beginning, that is where my science communication focus um, has been. So I've worked on several different television shows across multiple networks. And um, my kind of main focus the entire time, sometimes it goes a little off, but my main focus the entire time has been communicating
1: science. So that, that helps us understand, I guess, how big the umbrella is in terms mm-hmm. of science communication. There's a lot of, of other things that you can do. And then in terms of a, a day-to-day basis, yeah. just because I want to frame it as like a career path, how do you actually make money off this? I think any of us could start a blog, a podcast, et cetera. Like what did your path look like? It sounds like you really got into science and you're on the track and you're like, this is not right for me. You found your passion. You started dabbling. You started to exchange value in a way where you could, uh, this, this was a career. And then- you've gone deeper back into science, you you know, your, your degrees, you're getting your, your PhD now. So I really want to, I want to hear that trajectory, but I want to start at the point where you made that transition to something I just like to do to getting paid for it.
3: Yeah. And it doesn't happen overnight. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's important for people to realize, like, I do highly recommend if you're going to start science communication and you really do have an interest in making this your, um, principal money maker that you have Uh, something happening in parallel, that you have either a backup plan or that you're actively working on your degree right now, or that you have a day job, um, because it is very, very difficult to immediately start making money doing Mm -hmm. this. I mean, part of it is just the name of the game when you're a freelancer, right? Mm -hmm. That we, we hear terms like net 30, net 60, net 90. What that really means is that when you send that invoice to whoever has hired you for something, they have 30, 60 or 90 days to pay you back. Yes. So I mean, think about a two-week window in your job right now or maybe a month window. Um, It it can be really difficult. So oftentimes as a freelancer, you're juggling a lot of open invoices and sometimes Mm. you're chasing, which is kind of frustrating. Um, You know, early on when I was doing television, like I said, I, I was kind of brought on as an expert guest for a lot of things. And when you're an expert guest, let's say you're on a panel on a news show or you're coming on to explain some sort of big finding on your local television station, you're usually not paid for that. Um, mm. usually it's not until you're actually doing kind of hosting work that you start to get paid in television. So I wasn't making money when I first started doing um, on-air work. Same right. thing with podcasts. You know, a lot of people will start a podcast and until you actually have decent listenership, you're probably not going to be able to monetize your podcast. Now I'm in a place where my podcasts are monetized. You know, I sell Ads in every podcast episode. I have a Patreon for Talk mm. Nerdy. Um, for Talk Nerdy, it's my show, so I produce it. I finally pay an editor, but from the beginning, I've made that show um, start to finish. So I sell ads. I have a Patreon account, and I get an income from that mm. for the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. And fixed that for you. I was hired, so mm. I am work for hire on those shows, and I get a paycheck for actually doing my part in those shows. Um, all of my television work now is also work for hire so i get paid when i go on air and the rates can you know dramatically vary you could be paid per episode you can be paid per day it really depends on your contract i'm at a place now where i have an agent that negotiates these things for me um but you know all of those things take time and remember i've been doing this for a decade
0: right
3: um, i now am doing um i'm i'm comfortable enough, I'm making enough money in the work that I'm doing, that that's really where the tr- transition to going back to school came in. So I'm studying for a PhD in clinical psychology. Most of the people listening to the show, tell me if I'm wrong, are likely in the physical um, sciences. Yeah. Or the, um, uh uh, life sciences. So when you are doing basic science research, it's quite likely that you're working on a PhD, you're working in a laboratory of your principal investigator who pulled in grant money, and that's how you're getting paid. Hmm. So you're on their NIH grant, or something that worked out to get you paid. Yes, an, an applied program like medicine, law, psychology, you pay for your degree yes. <laughs> there there's you might be Expensive. able to apply for you know scholarships here and there but your you know principal investigator is not funding you so i waited i waited until i could pay for a private phd out of pocket i just did mm. not want to have student loans i had student loans on my master's degree um and i paid them off and it was a good feeling I don't like being in debt. So I worked really, really hard. I saved up enough money and now it's a struggle because I'm still trying to work while I'm a full-time PhD student. Um, But I'm able to pay for my degree out of pocket and I know I'm not going in debt, getting more of
1: an education. Mm. Yeah, and and I think that's just important for those of you listening that if you go the freelance route in science communication, anywhere in that umbrella, there's gonna be, I mean, part hustle and then, you know, part of where you're located and your network, of course, right? I mean, in LA, there's going to be more opportunities there, in terms of media, especially television, et cetera.
3: And New so- York and Vancouver, yeah. There's some hubs. Chicago, even um, some yeah. places in Texas. Um, yeah. So, so where do you live? That's important. Also, what do you want to do? Who do you want to reach? What kinds of um, stories do you want to tell? And what is the medium that we, you want to use them uh, that you want to use to be able to tell those stories? If you're a writer, you can do it from almost anywhere. But if you're the kind of writer who wants to do a Lot of reporting, and you need to be able to travel. You know, think about your lifestyle. Does that make mm-hmm. sense for you? So there are a lot of things to think about. But the good news is now we're in um, a world, a community where science communication is a viable career option. Where there are actually training opportunities for that. There, there are um, specialized degrees in science communication. They're rare, but they're starting to to come to fruition. Uh, I myself, along with my um, uh co-founders Jason Goldman and Sarah Curtis we actually run something called SciComm Camp that you mentioned which is it's like a sleepaway camp for adults and we do it out here in Los Angeles it's usually in um November let me look at the dates I have it right here um November 8th through 10th this year out here in Los Angeles. And it's really fun. It's like a grown-up camp all weekend, but you're staying in kind of like a hotel-style lodging. Um, Good food, lots of SciComm friends and workshops, keynotes, um, sort of unconference-style events to to get you really excited, to get you motivated, and also to teach you some skills if you want to really improve your science communication. So there's opportunities for sure.
1: Yeah, that's great. And we just had Lisa put in that URL for those of you who want to read more about it, psychomcamp.com. So, you know, you've, you've made it in one sense, you're at this place, like you said, you're more stable, you're able to go back to school. Uh, we talked a little bit about that transition to getting there and what that took. But I want to go back and talk, you know, more about the, the struggle, because we have a lot of people who are listening who are in, you know, what we call is the kind of that darkest hour moment. For sure. And so for you, when you were going to that, you alluded to it a little bit, you were in New York, you know, it was a big change to mm-hmm. have a therapist. So what, what was your darkest hour when you, you know, that moment when you realized when the pain got bad enough that you realized you had to make a change? What, what did that look like? What brought that on?
3: the funny thing is my darkest hour came, I think, after my darkest hour, because my real darkest hour was after I made the change, but wasn't sure if it was the right decision. Mm. So I had my darkest hour in New York first, which again, it was a transition from Texas to New York, which was tough for me. Um, It's funny, because people always think I'm a New Yorker, like I've got a New York vibe. But the truth is, I like it when people are, I don't know, like friendly and like not in a hurry. (laughs) And I'm not saying New Yorkers aren't friendly, they're really friendly. But culturally, there is a vibe that there's too many people, and you just don't have time for courtesy with every single person you meet. So that was mm. a big shift for me coming from the south. So, mm. um, you know, the the inner interpersonal stuff. I was really broke. That was really mm. hard for me. New York's a hard city to live in when you have no money. Um, mm. Living. Queens, not really in Manhattan proper. So I felt like I was sort of on the outskirts because I was at Queens College at the time. Um, and more, more than anything, it was like really mental health issues. So I've always had clinical depression. I've always been very open about that. And I've always um, advocated for reducing stigma around um, mental health concerns. But when I was in New York, I didn't yet have a psychologist. I was not yet on a, a medication regimen. I was in a place where I was really feeling like, oh, I'm not sick, so I don't need to take meds. And if I need to take meds, that means I really can't handle myself. I think it's a common kind of self-talk that a lot of us in um, academia have where Mm. we're experiencing classic symptoms of mental illness, yet we feel like you know we have a lot of self-efficacy we have a strong Mm. internal locus of control so we can just kind of get through it and it took many years before i realized that i needed a change so you know at first it was hard i decided let's go to la and see what happens like a door opened and i walked through it and i was young i was 24 i was like we'll see what happens Um, And then after a couple of years in LA, I was like, yeah, I don't know if I made the right decision. (laughs) And it was tough. I had a couple great opportunities um, very quickly. And then all of a sudden they died down. I wasn't making good money. I was struggling a little bit. Um, I started to look back into going to school, but then I, you know, and it takes sometimes a while, I think, to create a good group of friends. And Mm -hmm. that social support is just So incredibly important. And so Mm. at first I was sort of friends with other people's friends. They weren't really my people. I didn't realize that there was such an incredible thriving academic community in in Los Angeles. But once I became more dialed in with people from Caltech, with UCLA, USC, um, people from the Bay Foundation, people from all of these JPL, all these incredible organizations, SpaceX, things that are out here, it really started to come together for me. I found a good therapist. And at my you know, darkest point, I was like, maybe I need to take medication. And I started to see a psychiatrist. I started taking an antidepressant, which I still take to this day every day. And, um, you know, I had this epiphany that a lot of people have when they're struggling with mental illness. And then they finally do decide to seek all of their options and see what's right for them. A lot of people, when they first start taking medication are like, why did I wait so long? I could have felt like this years ago Mm. I could have experienced a new normal for me that is much more functional Um, and I had that epiphany not everybody has it for some people medication doesn't work for some people it's not right for them but um, I mean the one thing that I would say to anybody who's watching this right now who's struggling with depression anxiety feeling incredibly overwhelmed and realizing that it's seeping into their um, academic life their vocational life their interpersonal life their relationships they're not sleeping Um, see somebody you know see somebody and see what your options are it doesn't mean you're weak it doesn't mean that you failed it means that you're a human being and you're a human being who has um, who is doing superhuman things right now and you might need a little bit of help so Mm. um, that for me was a big change I think Mm. getting my mental health in check establishing a a functional work-life balance that's when things really started to pick up because I was Mm. I don't know i was a, awake i was capable and i was able to balance things a little bit better than i had previously
1: mm. no thank you for sharing that I, I think it's uh an important topic and it's something that we have written a lot of articles about people on our team I have written mm-hmm. about their experiences there too for, for those of you who want to read more on it um so uh kara my last question is you know you you're on all these different podcasts mm-hmm. you are <laughs> You excel at breaking down the science and being able to speak nerd and speak normal person. And <laughs> I want to put that in the framework of our audience here who's trying to get into industry. How can they do that effectively to get hired to thrive in a career, even if it's not in psychom? Like, what would you say? What, what's your what's your advice? Where do they start?
3: It's funny because when I talk about doing good sci I have kind of like a top five list. And the number one on that list is always know your audience. And I think we've heard this a million times before, but I'm, we're going to say it a million more before it really sinks in, right? So who are you sitting across from in the room? A big part of selling a television show, for example, is not being a sophisticated science communicator, but it's being able to convince a network executive that you're likable that they want to work with you and that you've got the goods and you're selling something super interesting so Mm. a huge part i think of success in any industry is feeling confident is being able to talk to the person who's sitting across from you in a way that is meaningful to them Mm. so you might have to do some research on who they are but even beyond that Let down your guard a little bit. I think the number one, I say the number one piece of advice, this is like my fifth number one piece of advice um, that I give to early career science communicators, but it translates to almost every other field, is that, you know how when you're growing up and you're, you're starting to establish a sense of self and a sense of identity, you really sometimes struggle to try and fit some sort of archetype. This happens a lot in academia. There's the archetype of the principal investigator. There's the archetype of the industry scientist. Mm. And you're like, how can I conform myself to be more like that person? And in doing so, you become so much less like yourself that you become fundamentally uninteresting. So there mm. are things that make us unique. And it may come down to something like a, a, a lisp or, um, a, a kind of a tick it may be a certain sort of mannerism that you have it may be like a really interesting geeky interest that you have when you try to suppress those things that really make you you in order to be like what you think you're supposed to be what ends up happening is that you become indistinguishable from other people and when you really i think develop and it takes time the strong sense of self and the sense of self-worth and self-efficacy that's required to be confident and be successful. You start to lean into the things about you that are unique. And all of a sudden in the room, people are like, that person was interesting. Mm. That person, I don't, I don't know if I've ever met anybody quite like them. There's something about that person that I really want to get to know. So it's this interesting paradox where the things about ourselves that we're often the most afraid of, I think are the things that we really should be leaning the most into because they provide an, kind of an anchor or a, an inflection point that connects you to other people. Um, this is definitely the case in television This Mm. is definitely the case in in any sort of media, whether it's writing, whether it's speaking. When you have a flavor, when something's undeniably you, people are gonna be much more drawn to it. And I really do think this is the case in an interview, it's the case in a boardroom, it's the case in a classroom. You've gotta have the thing that makes you, you, and not Mm. like everybody else.
1: No, I I think that point is so crucial, Um, differentiation. And, uh, mm-hmm. it, and it comes from a place that's very different than most of us think. And we think we gotta find some strength we don't have to differentiate ourselves. but really yes. it's, it's, it's something- It's already com- in you. Well, you see it as a weakness, right? So- Absolutely. Kara, thank you so much. Uh, where, where can we go again to find out about the, the camps that you described?
3: camp.com um, is the best place to go. And if you just go to CaraSantaMaria.com, you'll see links in my bio to almost everything. It's right there under about, to almost everything I do and have done. So you can click through some of that. Um, but definitely Psychomcamp.com is where you'll learn all about the, um, the science communication retreat that we host. So, you know, we'd love to have you guys. It's, it's, an awful lot of fun, and I promise you, you will learn a lot and you'll, you'll leave um, very inspired. Excellent.
1: Well, thank you so much, Kara, for being on. Please thank Kara in the chat box for her time today. Really, really appreciate you, your microphone, and everything. <laughs> you're doing.
3: So, thank, you. thank you.
1: Take care. Please thank Kara again if you have not yet in the chat box. What a fantastic interview. Really grateful to, to have her on. Um, I feel like we could have talked all day. So thank you for your activity in the chat box, too are you a phd student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia but you don't know where to start maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again but you haven't heard anything back from an employer go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry all you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com Put in your name and email address and we will send you our resume guide our networking scripts and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now again just go to phdsgethired.com we're gonna move right along uh, to our next guest robin who many of you who are here uh, watching us in the members only portion know uh, robin is an associate she earned her phd from the university of massachusetts medical school in biomedical science with a focus on immunology and virology, she started her industry career as a scientist too with Boston Scientific, and currently works as a uh, principal medical writer. But in between, she also worked as a uh, project manager. So just a a wealth of experience in terms of again three very popular career tracks, three of the most popular career tracks. So I'm really excited to have her on. Um, throughout her career, she has used her knowledge um, in in one field to learn and succeed in a new field. So we're going to talk about that. How to how to Uh, Use those transferable skills no matter uh, what how your career interest changes Uh, She has 14 plus years of preclinical research leadership and project management experience in multiple disciplines She loves learning she volunteers regularly has joined the board of the Association of women in science as the event director Has helped establish central Massachusetts a central Massachusetts chapter um, And uh, she still works in professional development you can connect with her on LinkedIn, on her LinkedIn page. It's linkedin.com slash I-N slash R-Marty, M-A-R-T-Y, uh, Roe. Am I saying that right, Robin? Right, right. Roy. Ro- Roy. Roy, Roy. Yeah, Roy.
4: Yeah, nothing fancy. You pronounce the X.
1: <laughs> there we go. Uh, it's just R-O-I-X-P-H-T. So, Robin, thank you very much for being on. How are you?
4: I'm doing well. I just got a big document off right before I came here. So that's
1: it's the good. best feeling, right? <laughs> yes. That's good. You're right in that dopamine storm in your brain. <sighs> yeah. And, uh,
4: all that anxiety, and now it's gone.
1: <laughs> that's great. Well, uh, so I wanted to start with you by, by asking about all your different career types. Why all of the changes? Was it need on the company? Was it your interest, a little bit of both?
4: <sighs> so I think it started out because... I think I joined Cheeky scientists right around the time that my postdoc was just coming to an end, running out of funding, and so I wasn't terribly excited about doing bench work anymore, and I was at that stage where I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I felt all I could do was bench science. Mm. Um, and when I had been doing my PhD, I was working in a high containment laboratory, a BSL-3 facility working with the plague, and uh, Through that, it kind of introduced me to sort of, I want to say regulatory, but more compliance type thing. And I mean, I I interfaced with the CDC and the USDA when they came and I kind of liked that aspect of it. And it just so happened that the biosafety department at the university was in need of somebody to oversee the lab. So I was kind of hesitant to make that transition because it wasn't nobody goes into science like, I want to do biosafety, like that's what I want to do with my life. But I thought there were some really good opportunities there to learn and I didn't really know what I was going to do. Mm. So I took that time to kind of settle into that job and like advance pretty quickly because I had, I had all the research skills. I knew how to run a lab. So it was kind of eye-opening that most of the people who are in biosafety haven't actually worked in a lab. So you know, part of it is just kind of knowing what sort of skills you can bring to to advance whatever, whatever situation you end up in. But I took that time to kind of think about what I wanted to do next. And I stumbled into working in a medical device company, but it was through networking. So it was sort of, you know, taking advantage of my network and the opportunities that came along and like trying to sort of see Kind of place myself in that position and see where I could leverage whatever I was learning in that position to move on to where I thought I
1: might want to be next. So, like, so what did that look like practically? No, that's great. So you said you know taking advantage of networking, etc. What did that mean? Did you follow up with people you met? Did you actually go to more events? What what did it look like practically?
4: So for me, I mean, I I was going to a lot of events, but I because of my location, so I'm in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I live, which is about forty five. Minute drive without traffic to Boston, which is where, like, you know, the hub of life science is. Um, And I couldn't see my, oh my God, it's like two hours, yeah, two hours of traffic. So I couldn't see myself going into Cambridge. Realistically, I have a husband and two kids, and like we're kind of situated where we are, and I didn't really want to do that drive. So I would go and I would do networking in Boston, Cambridge, but it really wasn't meeting my needs because I wanted to stay kind of more west of that area. So I really tapped into my more close personal network, and Mm. I happened to be really close friends with somebody who had a high position here where I am now. I mean, she didn't give me the job, but she got me a face-to-face. So actually, my first interview here at the company was for a full-time job as a medical writer, and I actually did really well through the interview process and everything, but they ended up going with somebody with more experience. But I tapped into that hiring manager who turned me down, and she actually helped propel me into some other
1: things here. So this is fantastic. So yeah, so I think the first lesson is, you know, start where you are, bloom where you're planted, that kind of stuff, even if you can't get, and sometimes that's the case, you know, it seems like, oh, it's 45 minutes away to one of the world's biggest cities with the most opportunities for PhDs, but (laughs) it can be hard uh, to to get there. So start with where you're at first, and then you can always branch out. I think a lot of us don't even do anything because we said, well, when the timing is right, or when I'm able to go do this, use what's in your hands currently. And then you, you brought up something else that you talked to a hiring manager after you didn't get the position. What did that look yep. like? How did that so,
4: I was, you know, probably like everybody else. I was really nervous to do it, but I, she had followed up with me personally whenever I didn't hear anything about the position because I contacted her first
0: before um,
4: before I contacted sort of HR. Mm-hmm. And she just said they ended up, you know, it was a hard decision and they ended up going in another direction with somebody who had more experience. And so I... That I really appreciated her input. That was great. I mean, she complimented me on my writing test, which I would never done one before. So I was like, oh, that's
0: good. She's
4: being serious. But I told her, you know, I acknowledged that I'm sure it was a really hard decision and that if something were to come along later, please keep me in mind. You know, I, it was just that standard sort of language, but it was just really appreciating that the time and effort she took to respond to me as well as just interviewing me.
1: Mm. Yeah, following up with I mean,
4: things I like about the company and that's
1: what I think. I think the key there is, for those of you listening, if you get a rejection, leverage that. That can be exposed yeah. an opportunity. And it also showcases you as the kind of person who's not going to be phased by that or have hurt mm-hmm. feelings. You're a professional and you yep. can follow up and you don't have to wait for them to follow up. You can follow up too. And we've seen this happen over and over again in the association that leads to a different job opportunity. Yep. So, so when did you get into the project management role?
4: So I started off here as a contractor doing kind of a combination of, I was a scientist, but it was more, it was biocompatibility, which unless you're in the medical device field, nobody knows what it is, but it's just, so our, I guess our motto was, we don't care if the device is function, we just need to make sure the parts aren't gonna harm anybody, like that's sort uh, of what it is. Um, but that had a nice combination of sort of, you need the science background for it, but it also brought in some of my compliance we have to comply to all the ISO standards and that sort of thing. Um, So that was a contract position. And then as my contract was kind of coming to the end, I mean, I know I wasn't really interested in staying in that field, but it was my foot in the door. And while I was here, you know, I really tried to like reach out and find as many people as I could, you know, where are you doing? And, you know, I really worked my network here. Um, I actually had two, two job opportunities one was a full-time position doing kind of what I'm doing now but at a couple of job grades lower than where I am and the other one was a defined term but but employee position as a project manager
0: mm. um, and, so uh, it yeah. was a
4: couple of job grades above where I was so I'm like there's a little bit of risk because it's not permanent but at the same time like I might as well just take that risk right like
0: yeah I yeah.
4: really liked the idea I mean I was we're all doing some type of project management and It was really just kind of looking at the job description, identifying what it was out of there that I did know how to do, things that I hadn't done before, but I recognized as something that would be pretty easy to learn. And then, Hmm. you know, there's also a few things that, yeah, I haven't
1: done that, but I don't see a problem learning it. So I was just kind of using that. (laughs) No, no, this is great. And I just want to make the point of what's what's, uh, amazing about what Robin did is, you know, she sought the experience. Sometimes we think, okay, there's more risk here or it's not enough pay, whatever. But really, especially when you're first getting into industry, you want to get as many experiences as possible. So you have to prioritize experience of the position. It can be very, very valuable. And not experience as in, oh, I have industry experience, but the transferable skills, the technical skills Mm -hmm. that you're going to gain. And as a project manager, you know it's it's a great experience to have so what were some of those skills you gained as a project manager what was managing projects like how was it different in industry than it was in academia
4: so i mean the biggest difference between industry and academia was that i actually had i worked in large groups of people so i was not you know i'm not the decision maker as a project manager it's more trying to get as much consensus as i can and getting people to kind of meet timelines and stuff um, my role as a project manager might even be a little different than typical industry project managers because our deliverable was not Something tangible. It was a process document. It was updating SOPs It was making sure that we were meeting all of any of the new re- regulations that, that came out and it was all related to clinical Which I had never been in before um, So it was just I think the deliverable was a little different than what I had anticipated it being because it's, mm. it's kind of a document um, but I didn't really find it much different from kind of things that I had managed before. I mean, yeah. I had only been in the position for a little less than a year too. So I was like just getting kind of running and then I, my position wasn't extended. So that was the risk I took.
0: Yes. And
4: yes. I kind of jumped ship sort of, but, um, I ended up, so the process documents that I'm updating are ones that I work to now, which helped me get the job where I am because we had a really kind of bad experience with an audit, <laughs> so those documents had to be majorly revamped, and I was part mm. of that process. So I hadn't, I hadn't written the documents that I'm writing now, but I knew the process for it really well, and I know how to write. So,
1: so then you got into this medical writing role. Congratulations, yeah, by the way, really recent. Uh, so, so <laughs> what did that look like? So now you're not managing the documents so much, in the deadlines you're you're actually writing them.
4: Right. So it's a little different. I mean, I will say when I, first, when I first applied for a medical writing position, I was interested in it, but I didn't really see myself doing it because I, I mean, I, I enjoy writing manuscripts and abstracts and like looking at data and stuff, but I didn't want that to be everything that I was doing all the time. Mm-hmm. So when I was applying for jobs, when my last job was ending, I knew I wanted to stay in the clinical arena. Like I really like the space. Um, So there were a number of positions that came open and some of them were a little out of my reach, but I thought, why not go for it? They were a little more strategy-based and being new to clinical and being new to strategy, like it wasn't a great fit. And I really hadn't worked in sort of a divisional aspect. So now I'm working in like our urology and pelvic health sector. Before that, I had been in corporate. So I hadn't known our products as well as I probably needed to 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 develop strategy. So, um, I talked to the hiring manager for one of the strategy positions and they said, you know, we have this medical writing position open. Um, would you be interested? And I thought, well, sure. I'm not going to say no. And I'm like, I really don't want to spend my whole time just writing manuscripts and stuff. Um, but when the job description came, it was writing, I mean, writing manuscripts and abstracts is just a minor portion. It's also being involved with submitting our PMAs, so our pre-market approval applications to the FDA, writing the clinical portions of that. Um, it's doing what I'm doing now, which is writing the clinical evaluation report. So mm-hmm. learning about all the hazards and harms that go into our, they're involved with sort of assessing how safer products are for
0: clinical use.
4: Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's the opportunity to meet with KOLs or key um, opinion leaders and stuff. I haven't done that yet, but because of the audit, my first year is pretty much devoted to these clinical risk documents, but I'm also learning the products really well. So, I mean, I I feel sometimes like I kind of stumble into my next position, but at the same time, I, I know I work pretty hard at kind of working my network and really like taking those opportunities where I can get them.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, and I, I think we see this a lot, right? And it's an old adage, right? Where preparation meets opportunity. So yeah. sometimes it can feel like you're stumbling into a role or whatever, but really that's just... There's an opening. You've done all this preparation. Absolutely. built your skills. You kept your, you know, your resume up to date, either on paper in your head, and and you're able to uh, leverage that. And I think that's a big part of it. And so you keep as you as you build up those skill sets, you're going to be in a better and better position to seize more opportunities. My last question is, you have this breadth of experience now. And I think one thing it sounds like you've seen is that there's not a huge difference between these roles. There's something different on a day-to-day, but you're working together. And I think a lot of times it's very easy for us to think in terms of these very firm verticals. Oh, it's medical writing. It's so different than project management. I could never cross these barriers or do that. It's so different than R&D. But you've transitioned seamlessly into all of them. They all have similar components. They all leverage a lot of the same transferable skills. Any, yep. any thoughts on that from your experience? No,
0: that's absolutely,
4: I think once I, I maybe a couple of years ago, I kind of realized that, or maybe actually I might have been right at my first job in biosafety when I stepped out of the lab and I thought, wow, I actually know, these cheeky scientists people know what they're talking about. I know a lot more than I thought I did. Like, I just don't know how to pipette, you know, it's, there's a lot more to it. And I think once you kind of stop listening to that negative voice in your head, like, Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. You'll realize you really can. And I won't say the biggest barrier, but I think the the thing that probably the most important skill that I've learned is communication. Like you have to know the people that you're working with Mm
0: -hmm. and
4: you know, knowing who to reach out to when you have questions, you know, how, when I recognize that you will hit roadblocks, you're not going to know everything. But finding those key people who can kind of help you through that, I guess it brings back to sort of mentors or something, not really a, a very defined relationship, but, you know, know who you can reach out to for help, really. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I get get through my day. I don't have a lot of oversight from my manager, so I'm sort of, which I enjoy, and yeah. I don't like to be micromanaged, but a lot of it's just figuring out how to
1: how to answer your own questions, I don't know. Yeah, no, well said. And I, I think for a lot of us, we don't think that we have the skills that we do or it's too hard and, and you do, you just have to learn how to communicate them and realize yeah. that um, everything that you're doing in your job search now, it may not be paying off automatically, but when that opportunity exposes itself, you're gonna be able to seize it because of, of what you've done just like Robin did. So Robin, thank you very much for sharing your story and being here, it's great to see you.
4: Thank you. And anybody who wants to reach out, reach out to me on LinkedIn. So I just finished the document. I should have some time to respond.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Remember you said that. Yeah, I know. (laughs) So uh, please thank Robin in the chat box. She is in the uh, private groups for the association, so you can say hi to her there as well. Thank you again, Robin. Have a great rest of your day. Enjoy the the free mental space after that. Yes. (laughs) Great. Thanks. So once again, please thank Robin in the chat box. Great show today. I'm going to say goodbye to everyone who's watching us. Uh, on the public stream or listening to us live. If you're interested in joining our association and getting access to the members only portion of the show, just go to PhDsgethired.com. I'll say goodbye to YouTube as well. Thank you YouTube, see you again soon. Uh, Thank you everybody watching us on the, the public stream live. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. (laughs) We're <laughs>
0: doing